Zelig is the 11th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1983. Woody Allen stars as Leonard Zelig, the human chameleon. The film is presented as a documentary on his life in the 20s and 30s. This strange man who could take on characteristics of the people around him. He is studied as a scientific curiosity and forms close ties to one of his doctors, Dr. Eudora Fletcher, played by Mia Farrow. Zelig is not one of Allen's most recognised films, and perhaps it's the strange title and the air of modesty that surrounds it. It's certainly a far cry from his witty, neurotic, modern New York comedies, but it is emotionally touching, very funny, sometimes too clever, and a spectacular special effects ride to boot. For someone else, this is a career-defining film. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week we look at 1983's Zelig, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it took a long time. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film and then come back. He was, of course, very amusing, uh, but at the same time touched a nerve in people, um, uh, perhaps uh, in a way which they would prefer uh, not to be touched. Uh, it certainly is a very bizarre story. Zelig is one of those very Woody Allen ideas. It's high concept and fantastic, but rooted in something very relatable. According to Alan, the initial idea was simply one of someone whose personality changed because he wanted to be liked. Alan has made similar jokes before, like how his only regret was that he wasn't someone else. So what if those changes became physical? What if you could become someone else? The idea of the man that changes with who was around him was then looking for a story to live in. You can imagine the idea was simple enough that Alan scribbled it down and put it in his infamous drawer of ideas. You could also imagine Alan turning the idea into one of his short stories. Or it could have been a short scene in a larger anthology. It could have been one of Harry Block's short stories come to life in Deconstructing Harry, for example. Instead, Alan fleshed the idea out into its own film. Alan's initial take was a comedy set in contemporary times, where the character would be a news broadcaster and he turned into the people he met. It was very straightforward and it could have worked like some Woody Allen version of the film Big. Allen decided to make it into a different kind of film instead. What would be Zelig started as the follow-up to 1980s Stardust Memories. Allen at the time was experimenting with cinematic form and his writing. He was breaking away from the humour he was known for and he wanted to make film with more meaning than his early comedies. So Alan decided to put the story in two very important settings. He put the life of the man he would name Leonard Zelig in the 20s and the 30s, and he would return to a genre that he already made a mark with, the documentary film. He was the phenomenon of the 20s. We think that at that time he was as well known as Lindbergh. It's really quite astonishing. Woody Allen loves the roaring 20s. It's a decade that Allen has visited many times over the years, in the Woody Allen cinematic universe, Gil Pender has travelled back in time from Paris, David is writing his first shows but will soon sell out to the mob, Colin Firth's Wailing Sue is touring Germany, and much more. But all that was to come. This was Allen's first time visiting the Jazz Age on film. There was certainly something in the air in the 20s. After the horrors of World War I, 
It was a time of prosperity everywhere you looked. There was Art Deco buildings, Charles Lindbergh reinventing aviation. There was new fashion, exciting jazz, incredible authors. And then there's the fads like mahjong and crossword puzzles. The story continues into the 30s where we see the Great Depression and the rise of the Nazis. It was certainly a time that left its mark on the culture. Zelig's life is tied to the 20s and 30s in so many ways. Alan spent a lot of time researching the period to make sure Zelig's life made sense, not something he usually does. How would the culture really react to a person like Leonard Zelig? Alan manages to string together so much of what makes the era interesting. Of course, during the film we get to meet gangsters, flappers, Nazis, bullfighters and speakeasies and so much more that is tied to this time. There's specific references to writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Eugene O'Neill, baseball hero Babe Ruth, or actors like Clara Bow and Charlie Chaplin, even presidents Hoover and Coolidge. Zelig's life is one of great celebrity. Early in the film, Zelig ends up as a freak in a freak show display thanks to his sister. That is actually a little bit late. The era of the freak show circuses and people like John Merrick, aka the Elephant Man, was more the late 1800s. But like Zelig at the start of the film, Merrick spent most of his life in and out of hospitals. Admission is charged to twice daily demonstrations of Leonard's stunning prowess. He does not disappoint, changing appearance over and over upon demand. Overnight, he has become an attraction, a novelty, a freak. More on point is that very 1920s thing of taking crazes and turning them into songs and dances. There were songs about aviator Charles Lindbergh almost as soon as he finished his famous flight in the spirit of St. Louis. They had names like Lucky Lindy and Lindbergh, brackets, Eagle of the USA. And so there are songs just like it about Leonard Zelig. Everybody go chameleon. Everybody show chameleon. Take a test or slow chameleon, chameleon, chameleon day. Of course, there would be a melodramatic biopic of Zelig called The Changing Man. Much like The Elephant Man, it's obvious someone would decide to dramatise Zelig's life. And of course, Hollywood chooses people in the roles that are more conventionally handsome than in real life. It also means that in a lovely moment, Alan gets to have the old-fashioned Hollywood kiss at the end of the film. When Eudora Fletcher finds Zelig lost with the Nazis, we see him starting to recognise himself. And then we cut to the Hollywood version of the film and that film's big Hollywood ending kiss. And it comes around the end of our film just when a big kiss should kind of come in a normal film. It's a clever way for Alan to have a big kiss near the end. It was nothing like that had happened in the movie. When, when Leonard came down from the podium, they didn't know what to think. But the bulk of the film is Eudora Fletcher's journey to help Zelig. It's interesting that this film ends up being a pseudo tribute to psychology. In the film, we meet a lot of experts who can't work out Zelig's condition, until it turns out to be all in his mind. In the 20s, it was still a very new idea, and the 20s and 30s was when Sigmund Freud and his contemporaries really came to be known. And if there's any heroes in the story, it's the head doctors. Alan has used therapy before in films, but it's mainly a device to deliver exposition. This film is actually, gently, a nice love letter to the positivity of therapy. I'm convinced that it's glandular in nature, and although there's no evidence now of any misfunction, I'm sure that further tests will show a problem in the secretions. I'm certain it's something he picked up from eating Mexican food. This manifestation is neurological in origin. Now, this uh, patient is suffering from uh, brain tumor. 
and I should not be surprised if within several weeks he died. Now, we have not as yet been able to locate the tumor, but we're still looking. Setting Zelig's story in the past meant that Alan could call on this wild array of characters and situations. But setting the story in the past also put some distance between the audience and the story. It's all been muddled through time and history. And Alan would play around that even further with the film's form, the documentary. Alan's first film, 1969's Take the Money and Run, was Alan's first time using the documentary format for comedy. Not only was the content funny, Alan made fun of documentary conventions. It was one of the first so-called mockumentaries. Zelig is technically a mockumentary, and there are many moments where it's played just for laughs. But what Alan is really going for, and what his team really break their backs doing, is to try and mix fiction and reality. The idea that this is a real documentary starts with the first frames of the film. Alan abandoned his familiar credit sequence, something he was still establishing, for something different. There is a fictional thank you to Dr. Eudora Fletcher and others. You're not supposed to recognise the names, but it's a bit of screenwriting flair. You spend the rest of the film half listening out for these names. When Eudora Fletcher turns up, we know she's important. It's a nice bit of setup. That use of documentary realism extends to the talking heads. Alan put in several famous faces who play themselves to make it seem like a real documentary. He chooses real writers like Susan Sontag and Saul Bellow who play themselves. But Alan puts in fake people too as so-called expert talking heads. Fake doctors and eyewitnesses. There was a few real people and fake people and enough of each to blur the line between fact and fiction. And I looked at the guy and I said, well, my goodness, he looks just like that gangster, but the gangster was white, and this guy's black. So I don't know what I don't know what's what, what's happening. By design, the documentary format means Leonard Zelig remains a mystery. We don't get to know his internal life. We only get to see how history sees him. So it's clever that this film makes you feel anything for Zelig at all. And there's a couple of fine screenwriting tricks that Alan employs to do this. Zelig's abilities are incredible but Alan manages to change how we feel about it over the course of the film. We get a few laughs in early, and we see the adulation of people around him. We think, this is a lot of fun. I wish I could be Lenny Zillary, the changing man, and be different people, and maybe someday my wishes will come true. Leonard Zellick is one of the finest gentlemen in the United States of America. He is the cat's pajamas. But through Eudora Fletcher, we discover that Zelig's abilities come from something so very human, the desire to be liked. In an amazing sequence where Fletcher analyzes Zelig, and he is revealed to be just incredibly lonely. Alan isolates Zelig even further when he is trapped as a freak under the care of his sister, and by then his worst fears have quietly come true. He who wanted only to fit in, to belong, to go unseen by his enemies and be loved neither fits in nor belongs, is supervised by enemies, and remains uncared for. Alan flips our feelings about these abilities a couple more times. We go from finding his abilities to be fun, to being happy that Zelig has managed to overcome them, again with the help of Eudora Fletcher, this time in her country home. These scenes have a completely different energy from the rest of the film. There's no music and no urgency. It's the one real bit of acting in the film, and the longest uncut scenes. I also like that Alan builds up to it. He tells us that history has given these sessions a name, the White Room Sessions. 
We soon learn that Zelig's abilities come from feeling inferior. This is just around the time that the idea of imposter syndrome was taking hold. Alan also incorporates an old adage that he has used in interviews and other places into this film to illustrate Zelig's abilities. And that's Alan's odd relationship with the book Moby Dick. Many times over the years, Alan has said that he wished he had read Moby Dick. He had been asked about his opinion once at a party and he couldn't answer because he hadn't read it. Now, we've all been here and sometimes it's just easier to lie and to fit in. Like the way it's easier to just say you've seen Star Wars to stop the cries of people going, what, you've never seen Star Wars? Do you recall the first time you began behaving like the people you were around? It's such a relatable lie. But then later in the film, Zelig slips back into his old ways after a series of scandals. And now we feel like his abilities are a curse. 30 minutes earlier, we thought it was cool. It culminates into the big point that Alan is trying to make. When Zelig loses himself towards the end of the film, his need to conform and protect himself goes to the ultimate conclusion, which is fascism. It's where you end up if you take this idea to the extreme. It's a big thought. It's obviously too big to go into in this film podcast, but would the evils of Nazism have gotten so far if people were less willing to conform to what some powerful nutjob was telling them? Yes, but then it really made sense. It made all the sense in the world, because although he wanted to be uh, loved, uh, craved to be loved, there was also something in him uh, that desired um, immersion in the mass and anonymity, and fascism offered Zelig that kind of opportunity. Alan doesn't hit the note very hard, but the message within Zelig is that you have to be yourself and embrace that you're different from others, if only a little. Kids, you gotta be yourself. You know, you can't act like anybody else just because you think that they have all the answers and you don't. You have to be your own man and learn to speak up and say what's on your mind. The film's big climax is the escape from the Nazis. And Alan does one final flip. It's Zelig's ability to copy someone that saves Dr. Fletcher's and his life because he copies her ability to fly a plane. In the film, they call it a paradox, but for us, it's Alan showing us one more time that his ability is neither good or bad, it just is. It's how we use it and how extreme we go that matters. Uh, the thing was paradoxical because what enabled him to perform this astounding feat was his ability to transform himself. Uh, therefore, his sickness was also at the root of, of his salvation. And uh, I think it's interesting to view the thing that way, that uh, it, was his, uh, it was his very uh, disorder that made a hero of him. The other trick that Alan uses to give this film an emotional wallop is the character of Eudora Fletcher, played by Mia Farrow. She is the audience surrogate. We don't get much of her in her life. She is a very simple character. But she cares about Zelig, so we care about her. In fact, Zelig is set up as a freak, and in cinema, we love the woman that loves the freak. She's also very smart. Her idea that leads to the breakthrough, to turn her own medical case back on Zelig's fake doctor, works as a treat. You see, last week I was, I was with a group of fairly erudite people who were discussing the novel Moby Dick, and I, I was afraid to admit that I hadn't read it, so I lied. Uh-huh. 
You, you see, I want so badly to be, to be liked, to, to be like other people, so that I don't stand out. That's natural. Well, I go to such extreme lengths to blend in. Alan also manages to give her some vulnerability. There's a moment in a voiceover where she reveals that she feels ordinary and plain. She also gets to be the hero in the end, kind of rescuing Zelig. She goes through as much change over the course of the film as Zelig himself. I started out by trying to use Leonard to make my reputation. And then I found that I had very strong feelings for him. I never thought I was attractive. I never had a real romance. Charles Coslow was the type of man my mother felt I should marry. Alan doesn't just use the documentary format to tell the story. Alan uses it to value the story, the way that documentaries do. I love the way that the documentary says that the white room sessions, those therapy sessions between Fletcher and Zelig, would become important. From this cramped vantage point, photographer Paul DeGay will record the famous white room sessions, a remarkable document in the history of psychotherapy. Well, how Zelig was really just a fad himself and would disappear. Fresh scandals appear and make headlines. Events in the Jazz Age move too rapidly, like Red Grange. A population glutted with distractions is quick to forget. The story of Leonard Zelig is about conformity, but so is the Woody Allen film, Zelig. I mean, it's funny how in the film, history is so fickle. The public adore Zelig, but they soon move on. Or they get the pitchforks out. The way people conform to public opinion is as much the story as the man who conformed to the people around him. And then there's the question of what Zelig stands for. In a way, it's a cheat. Alan gets to tell you what to think of the story through the talking heads that he writes. Like how Zelig reflects the immigrant experience that people want to fit in and not cause a fuss. It definitely reflects the Jewish experience in America and ties well with the Nazi storyline. But it's unlike Alan to be so allegorical. And another talking head says it's all bullshit anyway. And of course the Freudians had a ball. They could, they could interpret them in any way they pleased. It was all symbolism. But there were no two intellectuals who agreed about what it meant. There is one other aspect to the documentary that is interesting. There's a couple of times when Alan makes a point of footage being seen. He really labours over the use of cameras to film Zelig's therapy and the clever way that Fletcher and her team made the camera work. And then the film actually ends with a line about Zelig and Fletcher's wedding being captured on home movie. I think Alan is just acknowledging the people who had the foresight to capture footage and how they managed to capture history, especially in the 1920s. You know that wonderful feeling you get when you watch a documentary and you think it's amazing that the footage was captured at all? It's a nice little nod that Alan makes a couple of times. After untangling countless legal details, Leonard Zelig and Eudora Fletcher marry. It is a simple ceremony, captured on home movies. Big themes and symbolism aside, this film is a lot of fun. It's not the joke a minute of his early films, but this film is peppered with many delightful moments. Of course, it's a joy just to see Zelig live his big eventful life. We get to meet presidents and hang out with those celebrities. He is later involved in two sex scandals. The main comedy is the premise of Zelig himself, such as the Union being angry at Zelig for taking too many jobs, or the Ku Klux Klan hating Zelig because he could become any of the races that they hated. 
Alan's also peppered the film with plenty of classic one-liners. You can see Alan used them in the narration, in the dialogue, under hypnosis, and just everywhere. It's just this extra level of sparkle in the film. I'm due back in town. I, 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 I have this masturbation class. You know, if I'm, if I'm not there, they start without me. Even some of the talking heads were funny. Dr. Fletcher's mother in particular feels like just a silly Woody Allen sketch. It really could have been a scene from Take the Money and Run. And I'm going to be asking Mrs. Fletcher to, to begin with, uh, to tell us something about uh, what it's like to raise a medical genius. And I might ask you uh, about the many sacrifices that you've made to put your daughter through medical school. And could you speak right into the microphones, please? Sacrifices we had none. John was a stockbroker, had plenty of money, and I came from a wealthy Philadelphia family, so... Well, I'm, I'm There's sure... also a subtle return to the slapstick that Alan used in his early films. A couple of sequences have narration, but is otherwise silent. And Alan gets to run around with arms everywhere, being outrageous and funny. And it's a nod to his love of physical humour in the silent film era. I love the scene where Zelig is with the new Pope, or the scene where he starts a fight with the doctors who visit him. Alan is using lots of tricks in his comedy bag. And it's just entertaining to see some of the silly sequences, like the various Zelig memorabilia or Zelig meeting famous people, or that lovely scene where Zelig walks up a wall. There is a level of simple joy that is just threaded throughout the film. The film did not exaggerate. There were not only Leonard Zelig pens and lucky charms, but clocks and toys. There were Leonard Zelig watches and books and a famous Leonard Zelig doll. There were aprons, chameleon-shaped earmuffs, and a popular Leonard Zelig game. Alan really struggled to name the film. He had lots of ideas, and many of them are mentioned in the film if you listen out for them, like The Changing Man or Cat's Pajamas. I love that the film was ultimately called Zelig, and that Zelig has become this term used in popular culture. But I can't imagine the name helped to bring people into the cinema. But he landed on Zelig at the end, close to the last minute. The production of the film, and how it was made, and how it adds to the story, is really what makes this film special, and different from other Woody Allen films. Zelig is the film where Allen spent the longest time on production, with some reports saying it actually took three years from start to finish. Initially, this film was supposed to follow 1980's Stardust Memories. Allen wrote it, and was ready to shoot it, but he soon realised that some of the scenes would take a long time to set up, and there was still a lot of testing of how to make the effects work. Time was needed to see what could be achieved. So Alan had a crazy idea, a terrible idea, and one that he would soon regret. He decided to make two films at once. So A Midsummer Night's sex comedy, this small, one-location, whimsical thing, was shot at the same time as Zelig. They would shoot scenes for sex comedy in the day, and then change costumes and shoot scenes for Zelig at night. It fits with Alan in his period, where he'd like to try things and break rules. Alan would later reflect that it was a mistake. It wasn't so bad in terms of scheduling and time, but switching the mindset back and forth between two different visions was too hard. In the end, only a few things were shot in the same set as sex comedy. I assume much of Dr. Fletcher's Country Retreat is shot on the same grounds as sex comedy. And I've never flown before in my life, and it shows exactly what you can do if you're a total psychotic. <laughs> Production for Zelig continued after Sex Comedy wrapped, and A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy actually came out first. Then the next challenge appeared. Alan had ambitiously written sequences where he was meeting a variety of real people, but his team had to find footage or photos, 
clear the rights with the footage or photos, and then write around what could be used. Alan then shot new scenes to fit around it. I imagine sequences like the bullfighting only came about because Alan and his team had access to some footage of bullfighters. All this additional work meant that the production for Zelig actually crossed over into Alan's next film, Broadway Danny Rose, which Alan started before Zelig wrapped. And that was just a complicated production. There was another challenge with post-production. Yes, I am. I am. Perhaps you read my latest paper on delusional paranoia. Turns out the entire thing is mental. To create the authentic feel of period footage, Alan and cinematographer Gordon Willis had to pull every trick out of the book. Gordon Willis had been working with Alan for five films by 1983, including the masterful work on Annie Hall and Manhattan. He was a technical whiz, and whatever mad idea that Alan had, Willis made it come true. But Zelig was another level. Without the use of computers, Alan and Willis had to make film footage look like several different eras. They had to artificially age and scratch the film, remove random frames, and use many other tricks to make the footage look vintage. They also had to shoot in old-fashioned styles with very little light or cameras that mimicked old aspect ratios. There was footage that looked like old newsreels, home footage, or that melodramatic 30s Hollywood biopic. In interviews with Willis, he talks directly about the technical aspects. He knew enough about the camera and film developing techniques to really get down to the chemical elements of liquids and how it changed over the decades. He was more than a technician. He was enough of an innovator and an anarchist to just stomp on film with his feet when he needed. But that was just the film stock. The lighting, the staging, the sets and the production all had to look like the real thing. The film within the film is shot with those melodramatic close-ups and that very distinct lighting. In this 1935 film based on the life of Zelig called The Changing Man, the atmosphere is best summed up. We can't give up custody of Leonard. I know if I'm given the chance, I can cure him. It's no use. Even our attorney says it's hopeless. Really, Dr. Fletcher? Uh, may I call you Eudora? There's one shot of Eudora Fletcher coming to work. It is shot like paparazzi footage, and the camera had to be right and feel appropriately handheld. There's vintage cars in the background, and of course all the outfits are right. It all looks seamless when sat next to the existing news footage that Alan uses. And a lot of work went to make that one scene look easy. Zelig is sometimes compared to Forrest Gump because the effect is similar to the one used in that film, that a character is superimposed over existing footage. But there's actually only a couple of matte shots, or shots where Zelig was superimposed. One of them appears early in the film, and it's of Zelig playing baseball. It tricks us for the rest of the film that we are seeing Alan superimposed on old footage. And we see it again later when Alan and Farrow stand in front of Times Square. But actually, most of the other scenes of Zelig were shot with actors in period costume, and it was Willis's wizardry that makes it look authentic. Several scenes of Zelig in crowds were real crowds with everyone in costume, shot and post-produced to look like an old film. Sometimes lookalikes were employed. That footage of Zelig with Hitler at the end feels like real footage before Zelig emerges from behind and you realise it's all staged. It works because the film stock seems to come from the same source as the crowd shots. Alan and Willis and editor Susan E. Morse create the effect that Zelig is really in the scenes by cutting new shots with period footage seamlessly. Take the parade sequence which features footage from a parade cut with Zelig in a car. That the edit works so seamlessly is a credit to Morse. 
and that the film's stock matches so perfectly is a credit to Willis. And it's also worth remembering, no computers were harmed in the making of this film. Alan Azelig is also superimposed into photos, and again, they are aged and fit seamlessly into the film. And rushed past with some footage, the audience forgets that it was photos, and not a real scene. But it's all an illusion, a mix of well-disguised footage, doctor photos, and any other trick they could think of. There's a really nice sequence with Zelig and Fletcher when she starts analysing him for the first time that is just photos and scratchy voiceover. It's very intimate, and it's worth noting that the audio has also been treated to sound like something that might have been captured in an old tape recorder. Zelig earned Willis an Academy Award nomination, which he didn't win, and crazy enough, it was only his first nomination. He didn't win for The Godfather or Manhattan, which featured some of the most memorable screen imagery in all of cinema. He deserved far more awards, but he definitely deserved it for this film. To get a story, you jazz it up, you exaggerate. You'd even maybe play with the truth a little bit, but here was a story, it was a natural. You just told the truth and it sold papers. It never happened before. It's really just fun to be in the world and the period of the film. Amongst the stock footage, we get to see Al Capone and Babe Ruth. There's also a shot of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it's the only footage of him that exists. And I love the old planes, and I love all the old microphones used in many of the news and press conference scenes. There's that sequence of Zelig merchandise which features a Zelig wristwatch and a doll. Many of them are the work of inventor Eon Sprout. He also created various contraptions for a Midsummer Night's sex comedy. I would love to know what happened to these film props. It would be sad if they're just stored in a box somewhere. Sadder still if they've been destroyed. The other major production element of the story are our talking head guests. Like an actual documentary, Alan shot a lot more than he needed. Apparently, several people were left on the cutting room floor. I love that Alan managed to get Bricktop. She was a real owner of Parisian nightclubs in the 20s. Alan mentions her again in Midnight in Paris many years later. Everyone used to be at my place. That is everyone who worked, someone. And uh, occasionally, uh, uh, someone would bring um, uh, Zelig in, Leonard in. Cole Porter was fascinated by uh, Leonard. And he once wrote a line in a song, uh, you're the tops, you're Leonard Zelig. But then he couldn't find anything to rhyme with Zelig. Alan gave his guests the story and then just let them speak. It's very effective that they are in colour and everything else is in black and white. Alan shot them casually in their spaces and I like how they're still wearing lapel mics. Several actors flesh out the talking heads as aged versions of people we see or other witnesses. They are mostly unknowns which adds to the mix of realism and fiction. For many of them, it was the only ever film roles. And I love that Alan took this approach with non-actors. The older Eudora Fletcher is played by Ellen Garrison in her only ever film role. She was spotted by casting director Juliet Taylor at a members club and was asked to audition. She was the right age and she had the right look and she was kind of the right pedigree. Ms Garrison responded to being asked to audition by asking if Taylor was a member of the club. Garrison wasn't the only woman approached though, but she was the one who won out in the role and she delivers Woody Allen's sci-fi nonsense perfectly. I felt it was a shame because here was this unique case that I could make my reputation on. Not that I knew how to cure him, but if I could have him alone and, and uh, feel my way 
and be innovative and creative. I felt that I could change his life if I only had the chance. I love the old doctors and of course Eudora's mother. Alan obviously didn't choose takes to make them look bad and they were just asked to mumble through like real interview subjects. But a couple of them actually do jokes that Alan wrote. They are delivered with natural grace. But she had a strange boyfriend called Geist that uh, he'd been in jail for real estate fraud. He was selling the same piece of property to a lot of the same people. And matter of fact, the congressman from Delaware bought it twice. Alan himself is pretty good at zelling. It plays to his strengths. He gets to be a bit silly and just smile like an idiot sometimes. He gets to run around and do silent comedy bits. He doesn't try to break our hearts too much. The film doesn't rest on his shoulders. What Alan really brings to the role is his star power. We like seeing someone we know in these situations. Zelig's ability would work less well with a less famous face. Is she going to be all right? Because is this a, you know, I've got to get back to town, really. I, I have an interesting case treating, treating two sets of Siamese twins with split personalities, getting paid by eight people. Mia Farrow is wonderful, but also not given a lot to do. It's just not that kind of film. She plays caring and nice. Like Alan, she later remarked it was difficult to make two films at once. A few of Alan's regulars return, but blink and you'll miss them, like Deborah Rush, Peter McRobbie, and John Rothman. They are just playing people mainly lost in history in this fictional doco. No one gets long acting moments. The narrator is British-born actor Patrick Horgan. He had many TV roles, but his smart voice meant he did a lot of audiobooks, including famous editions of Sherlock Holmes and Finnegan's Wake. His voice works perfectly for the film, just the right amount of BBC old-timey authority. Horgan got to work with Alan again, playing a guest in a party in The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. That was his last ever role, and he died in 2021. On his deathbed, Maurice Zelig tells his son that life is a meaningless nightmare of suffering. And the only advice he gives him is to save string. Because they were made at the same time, Alan's crew for A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy and Zelig were exactly the same. Many of them had been working with Alan for three or four films by now, including production designer Mel Bourne, producer Robert Greenhut, casting director Juliet Taylor, costume designer Santo Loquasto, and editor Susan E. Morse. It's a team that wouldn't change very much until the end of the 90s. Also returning is Alan's regular collaborator, Dick Hyman, for the music. Like Gordon Willis, this film asked a lot from his talents, and he stepped up admirably. Hyman composed the original music that is featured in the film. The score from the documentary sequences worked great. Hyman also had to write a number of 30s-era novelty songs from scratch, songs that are written like they could have been from the time and then recorded in the same fashion. Hyman knocked it out of the park. He came up with songs like Chameleon Days, Doing the Chameleon and Leonard the Lizard. I suspect that Hyman wrote a few of the songs just to give Alan some options, and they were all so good that they were all used. Although Alan didn't use any of them in the opening credits the way he normally would. Why, oh why, throw your best gal down right on the floor. She'll be thanking you for more and you're doing the chameleon. If you hold your... There's more blurring of reality with the song Chameleon Days, supposedly being performed by Helen Kane, the 20s famous singer for Button Up Your Overcoat, I Want to Be Loved by You, and many more. Helen Kane was the uncredited inspiration for Betty Boop, and it became a court case that Kane lost. When Betty Boop became a cartoon in the 30s, 
The women who did the voices for the cartoon were found in a Helen Kane impersonation contest. One of the eventual voiceover artists was Mae Questel, who also provided the so-called Helen Kane voice here for Chameleon Days. Alan would cast Questel again in New York Stories, where she would memorably play Alan's mother, who lives in the sky. No soundtrack album for the film was ever released and there's no way for people to get the songs officially. It's a shame. I hope someone in Woody Allen's camp realises it might be cool to make these songs available properly on a soundtrack. Zelig was released on the 15th of July 1983 in the US by Orion Pictures. It was Allen's second film for Orion, although it should have been the first. This Orion run would contain some of Alan's best films, but that was yet to come. At this time, in an era when information moved more slowly, Alan was still Mr. Annie Hall and Mr. Manhattan, if not Mr. Sleeper. For many people, he was already settling into cliches, modern New York stories with good one-liners and a deep message. The idea of the one Woody Allen film a year had not quite really taken hold. The deal he signed with Orion was complete creative control in exchange for modest budgets. It allowed Alan to do a film a year, or at least just keep working on film after film at his own pace. And his pace was a lot faster than most. It also meant that Alan went against the grain with where cinema was heading in the 80s. The business of cinema was moving into the era of the blockbuster, ruled by Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters and more and he was moving away from his own work, that modern, talky New York romance. Which is all to say that Zelig was not a blockbuster smash, and was never designed to be. Zelig has sold his life story to Hollywood for a large sum of money. When the scandal breaks, the studio demands its money back. Zelig can only return half, as the rest has already been spent. Outraged, the studio gives him half his life back. They keep the best moments, and he is left with only his sleeping hours and mealtimes. For me, this film is a gut punch. I clearly remember going through Woody Allen's filmography when I was discovering his work, and not knowing much about this one, and then getting knocked out by the message of the film and how the message was delivered. It's the thing that Woody Allen wannabes can't replicate. Yes, there are other great directors, there are other great comedic actors, and there are other great comedians, but those very Woody Allen concepts are unique to him. And he can take that big idea, imbue it with human-level meaning, add both pathos and humour, and let it unfold in a story or a film. I mean, in all of cinema, is there another film like Zelig? It's ironic that the film about a man who wanted to fit in is so utterly unique. Gordon Willis, in particular, is doing possibly his best work. It's possibly Dick Hyman's best work. All the production teams are just killing it and Alan himself manages to find that sweet spot between thoughtful filmmaking and comic joy. I think for a lot of people, they miss the verbal wit and the romance. Especially back in the day, with what Woody Allen was known for, this seemed like a bit of a genre exercise. One of his short stories made into a film, a bit of style over substance, and I guess it's not quite one of Allen's masterworks. It does feel a little slight and a bit one-note. But for me, that is the point of Woody Allen. He's got so many ideas, and this was film number eight. People were still discovering the depths of his creativity. 
And I love it. I really do. It's stuff like this that makes me a Woody Allen fan. Anyone can like Annie Hall and Manhattan, just like anyone can like Life on Mars or Heroes. But real Bowie fans love the album tracks, and Zelig is a wonderful album track. The lasting influence of this film might simply be that the word Zelig is used so much in popular culture. You often see headlines where someone is referred to as a Zelig. Usually they are someone who has been around several different parts of history or led an interesting life. So in a way, it's great that Zelig lives on through pop culture, but it misses the point of Zelig, this complex psychological character. But hey, people see what they see, and crowds can be so fickle. Well, his taste wasn't terrible. Uh, he was the kind of man who preferred watching baseball to uh, reading Moby Dick, and that got him off on the wrong foot, or so the legend goes. Here's some fun facts about Zelig. Well, look, there's no getting around it. Zelig is short. It is Woody Allen's shortest film. The whole thing is 79 minutes, including credits. And even then, some of it feels padded, as we spend time exploring the history in the context of the 20s. It's even weirder to know that Allen apparently cut some scenes. It says two things about Allen in his period. One, that he's starting his film a year schedule and doesn't feel the need to make long statement films, as he would be making another one after this. There's no need to hang around and say too much. The other is that he prefers short films anyway, and he would get even more ruthless with cutting scenes as the 80s and 90s rolled on. And I said, uh, why don't you just take notes and write it up? And she said, Paul, when a man changes his physical appearance, you want to see it. I love how the fictional film within the film, The Changing Man, is credited to an actual film studio, Warner Brothers. I imagine someone at Warner's had to sign off on this. The newsreels have real branding as well, such as Pathé, who was still a real company, and Hearst, which is long gone. It is more blurring of fake and real. And finally, Zelig, the word, is Yiddish. It means blessed or dear departed soul, according to some old articles. Although putting Zelig in as Yiddish in Google Translate, it apparently means happy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. What do you think of Zelig? I just love this one, and do you agree? I know it doesn't have some of the things that people love about Alan, and it's very short. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. Best questions and comments will be in the Q&A episode. I've already gotten lots of good questions and comments, and yes, I've heard what you had to say about interiors. As usual, there's ways to support the podcast. This week, let's talk about the books. I've written three volumes of the Woody Allen Film Guides. They are the most comprehensive guides to Woody Allen's work that you can find. They are over a decade's worth of work based on a lot from the website. In a way, these podcasts adapt the chapters in the book. I talk about each film and how they were conceived and how they were made. But there's also hundreds of quotes from Woody and the people who worked with him over the decades. Each chapter also has a lot more context about what's happening in Allen's world, Allen's writings and other projects. There's also more about the awards and the reception. My favourite bit is the minute-by-minute breakdown of every film. I cover every known location, every music cue, explain every reference, every cameo, and much more. Absolutely the most comprehensive look, and there's minute-by-minute guides for all the chapters, not just any haul. They are self-published fan books, but if you're here, I think you'll love them. There are far too many pages to fit into one or even two volumes, although I have thought about making the pages bigger and making a 1,000-page monster or something. Maybe. You can get them from Amazon, and there's links in the description. 
The money goes back into helping the podcast, the website, and helping to keep this whole project going. Those description links also have links for the Patreon. Thanks to the new patrons this season, patrons will get an ebook version of all the Woody Allen film guides for free. There's also a tipping service called Buy Me a Coffee. Along with the books, you can also buy a poster. And of course, you can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell a friend and follow me on social media at Woody Allen Pages and check out the website at WoodyAllenPages.com. Next week, we look at a film that sees Woody Allen return to his childhood once again. Thanks for listening. I uh, studied a great deal. I worked with Freud in Vienna. Yes, we, we broke up the concept of penis envy. Freud felt that it should be limited to women. <laughs>